This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This is God's word. It's really good to see everyone this morning. My name is Damien. I'm the pastor here at New City. And as Benjamin said, we are in a sermon series that's really about what is the church in the world? And week one, we went all the way back to the beginning of where the church started. And that was in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham to himself and he blessed Abraham and he gave him a mission. And he said, your mission is to receive my blessing by faith and to go and be a blessing to all others. And so we are a conduit of that blessing. And then last week, we talked about the fact that why do God's people gather? We said that we gather to be formed and we're formed to be sent. And so it's another way the Bible talks about being blessed to be a blessing because of course, when you're blessed by something, that thing forms you. When you receive something over and over, that thing makes you into a certain type of person. And then of course, when you become a certain type of person, you live in a certain way. And so we saw how those two things went together week one and week two. But this week, we're going to take a step forward in this continued idea of the church in the world. And we're going to ask a slightly different question. And that is, what is the church? What is our identity? And to be more specific, because when I say church, we might think of a building. What is the people of God? What exactly is God doing in making this group of people? And what words would you use to describe the church? And so... We all know that when we understand what something is, we understand more of what it's for, right? When we understand what something is, it tells us a whole lot about that thing. And this, I was reminded of this very simply. My daughters got a book from their grandparents over Christmas and we've been reading it. Uh, It's one of those short story books, but it's called The Big Red Tractor. And there's nothing like uh, a sermon illustration that comes from a book called The Big Red Tractor. So we're reading the Big Red Tractor, and when I sit down, I have no idea what the Big Red Tractor is about. But as it turns out, there was a town, and there was a Big Red Tractor in the town. And the town lived as an agricultural town. And when they would go to till the soil to plant seeds to harvest their crop, they had a Big Red Tractor. But when you turn to the page of when they use the big red tractor, you're confused because there is a person on the tractor, but then there are people pushing the tractor and there are people attached to the front of the tractor and they're pushing and pulling the tractor. Now the tractor of course has an implement that's in the ground tilling up the soil, but it's clear that they're using the tractor in the incorrect way, right? Because we of course know that a tractor is supposed to drive on its own, but apparently they didn't. So you turn the page after they go home from this long day's work that they are used to doing. And one of the townspeople is cleaning out his attic. And when he's cleaning out his attic, he finds a book. And he doesn't know what type of book it is. So he reads through it and he finds that it's the owner's manual for the big red tractor. 
And to his surprise, he finds out that the tractor actually drives on its own. So he goes down to try to start it and it doesn't start it. So he knows that he needs to fix it. So the next day though, he tells people about the book that he found and about the big red tractor actually drives on its own. Everyone ridiculed him. No one believed him. They mocked him. So of course, like a, like a good farmer and hard worker, he decides, fine, I'll have to fix it on my own. So he stays up all night and he fixes the tractor and the tractor starts. And then all night long, he, he tills the next field. And when he wakes up, they find him, or the next morning they find him sleeping on the tractor and the townspeople are amazed because guess what? The big red tractor drives on its own, just like he said. So the rest of the story is, is about the importance of when you understand what something is for, you understand a lot more about it. Now, last week, we started asking the question, what is the church for? Because when we understand what the church is for, of course, we know a lot more about it. Particularly what we said is that some people have come to believe that the church is mainly for formation of a moral people, right? And that's really all they think about is the church is for forming moral, well-behaved people. Now, they wouldn't say it like that. By the way, that's not bad. But is that all that the church is for? We'll talk about that in a minute. On the other hand, many people have said, no, the church is about mission. The church is about going out into the world and serving those people who are in need. And we said, of course, that is good too. But when we choose one to the exclusion of the other, we forfeit our calling. And the way I said it last week was when formation forgets mission, the church becomes self-absorbed and church-focused. So when formation forgets mission, we become self-absorbed and church-absorbed uh, or church-focused. But when mission forgets formation, we become a mere group of active people in the community. And so we said at New City, we believe that these two things go together, formation and mission. And they're integral to one another. And we say, we said, and we say, that is what the heart of our mission is. We want to form whole life disciples that our communities will flourish because we believe we're blessed to be a blessing. While all that's true, This morning, we're going to look one step further at the words that Peter uses to describe the identity of the church. Again, when we know what something is, we know a lot more about what it's for. And Peter straight up says in our passage today that the church or the people of God is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. That is what we are. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. So if that's what we are, then of course it should tell us about what we we exist to do. Now we can't can't get to every identity marker of, of the church or what the people of God is. That's why we have a whole Bible. But this morning we can get a solid snapshot. And that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at this passage and we're gonna see three observations, okay? The first observation is the threefold role of priests. The second is the two givens of holiness. And the last one is the one people or possession of God. So three, two, one. The three roles of a priest, the two givens of holiness, and the one people or possession of God. That's what we're gonna see today. So first, let's let's jump in here to the threefold roles of priests. Now, if you were listening to Ben at the beginning, you heard him say, we are priests. And for many of us, that may 
confuse us. We're not sure what that means because we think one of two things. One is that priests were something that existed in the Old Testament. Or today, if priests exist, they're Roman Catholic or Episcopalian. Right? So, so how are we priests? How can that be a word that Peter uses to define or describe the very identity of the church? Well, the way to understand that would be to understand the role of a priest. And there were really three roles, a threefold role of the priest. The first one, the, the role of a priest was to teach the law of God to the people. So God had revealed himself and someone had to teach the people about who God was. Someone had to bring forth God's revelation in teaching regularly. And in the Old Testament, that was given to the priests. <clears throat> and some of you may be thinking, well, I thought that's what the prophets did. Like when I read the Old Testament, I see the prophets are the ones that are teaching the people of God. That's actually not true. The prophets were more of an itinerant reality when the priests weren't doing their job. You see, the priests were the everyday week in and week out preachers. They were to take the law of God and apply it to all of life for the people. When they weren't doing that, the people of God started to drift from their calling and their identity in the world. So the prophets would come along as covenant enforcers, almost like attorneys prosecuting the people of God, taking them to task on God's behalf, calling them back to their mission. And if you read the prophets, one of the primary groups of people that the prophets would come after in these writings were the priests. They would come at the priests and tell them that they had forsaken their role to take God to the people. That's the role of a priest. They stand in the gap, as Benjamin said, between the creator and the people in the creation. And in this case, the priests were to take God to the people through teaching his law. So that's an important thing, God to the people. But if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you also realize the people of God sinned and God had created a way for atonement or at-one-ment to happen where God could still interact with his people even though they had sinned. And we know that was through blood sacrifice. So what role would the priests play there? Well, the people would bring animals to the priest. They would lay their hands on the animals, confess their sin, and the priest would sacrifice the animal and throw the blood on the altar. And the altar was to represent God. And this is the system that God had, had created. And so that's the other half of the priestly role, right? The first one was to teach God's word or to take God to the people. And the other role was for the people to come confess their sin and for the priest to take people to God. You see how it goes both ways? Those were the two roles. Take God to the people through the teaching of his word and take the people to God through pointing them to the means that God had given them to get access to him, which was blood or the atonement. But there was also a third way. And that was he or the priest was to bless the people on behalf of God. Now, you know, at the end of every service, I raise my hands and give a blessing. And that's called the Aaronic blessing. Aaron was a priest, right? And I give you that blessing and we take it directly from the Old Testament because that was the role also of a priest to remind the people every time they gathered that God was blessing them to be a blessing. So these are the threefold roles of a priest. So if we understand a little bit more about priests, what does that mean that we then are priests, right? If the threefold role of a priest, again, was to take God to the people, to point people to God through his means of atonement and to bless people on behalf of God, what are we to do as God's people now? Well, we need to understand then 
that the people of God as priests, it's actually a missional function. It's actually a very outward reality. Because we as priests in our everyday life are called to represent God to everyone we interact with, to invite, God, invite people to God through the atonement of, in this case, Jesus, and to speak and be a blessing to them in the world. Do you see how all of these weeks are adding up now? We, start, we went backwards though. We started with a blessing. But how does God bless us and how does God bless people? He blesses us through his word, and through the sacrifice of Jesus. And now all people who trust in him, Peter says, are to be priests and embrace this priestly function. So when Peter says you are a royal priesthood or we as the church are a royal priesthood, it means we are God's representatives in the world. It means that everywhere we go, we are representing God. Everything that we do, we are representing God. Think of anything. Right now, I'm just going to give you two seconds. Think of something, something so benign. Even there, you are a priest. You represent God to the world. You either do it well or not so well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It's like Peter is saying that through us, God will become known to the world. And through us, God will draw the world to himself. That's what priests did. And so now when you and I, as Christians go out into the world, we also take this function. But then the question is, how can we function in that way? How can we actually function as priests where we take God to the world and we take the world to God by our everyday life? Well, that's the second thing that Peter says. He says, you are a chosen race, We'll get to that later. A royal priesthood, which we just talked about. And then he says, a holy nation. A holy nation. So again, when we hear the word holy, just like the word priests, our minds can fill with all types of things. They might be right. They might be kind of right. And they might be absolutely wrong. And I just don't know where we all are. So let's just simply say, what is holiness? And in the Bible, there are two givens to God's holy people. And I say God's holy people because the only people in the world that are holy are those who belong to God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so there are two givens of holiness, which is the second thing that I want to talk about. At the heart of the word holy is the idea of distinct or set apart or different. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be different. It's not primarily to be religious or to be moral or to follow certain rules. It's not primarily that, although that is as a related concept, which we'll talk about, but primarily to be holy is to be set apart. It is to be different or distinct. So something or someone that is holy gets set apart for a distinct purpose in relation to God. And then they're kept separate for that purpose. So for Israel, for example, it meant being different by reflecting the very different God that Yahweh had revealed himself to be compared to the other gods. So Israel was to be different from other nations because Yahweh was different from other gods. Do you see that? So to be set apart to represent Yahweh 
means that I also must be different than the other nations because I have a God that is different and I'm representing that God. Now they're representing their own God. And so in that sense, they reflect something different than I do as a member of Israel, right? And so the two givens though of holiness, if holiness is mainly about being set apart, there are two realities to this being set apart. And the first one is holiness is a given fact. And this is what I mean by that. When God, by his grace, chooses you or a people, what he's doing is he's he's calling you out by his own initiative. And he's saying, I am your God and you are my people. As soon as that happens, you are holy because you're set apart all of a sudden. You've been called out. So if you've trusted in Christ, you are holy and it has nothing to do with anything you've ever done or anything you will ever do. It's a given fact To be a part of God's people is to be holy. And this is what the New Testament means by the word saints. When the New Testament writers refer to the people of God in Christ as saints, it's because of this reality that by nature of God calling them to himself, they are holy or saints or set apart. So for you to trust in Christ means you're a saint. It doesn't refer to you as being an especially religious person or that you've achieved some higher status than anybody else through some type of spiritual exertion or some type of spiritual exemplary life. We don't earn this calling of holiness. We're given this calling of holiness. All it means to be a saint is that God has identified you, identified you as his own because he wanted to. And you've responded by trusting in Christ. And now you're set apart. It's a given fact that everyone who trusts in Christ is holy. It's also though a given task. Because once we've been made holy, we're called to live in light of that holiness. And so holiness is a given fact. It's also a given task. We're called as God's people to live out this representation to the world of God every day, all the time, wherever we're sent. That is the task of being set apart. That is the task of being a priest. And so where would you go in the Bible to find a long list of holiness? I mean, it's all over the place, but where would you go? Well, I would go and I'm going to take us to Leviticus chapter 19. I mean, where, I mean, if you think about holiness in the Bible, if you, if you're familiar with the Bible, of course you'd go to Leviticus, right? It's all about being holy. It's all about being set apart. It's all about these realities. But I think that if you read Leviticus 19, which we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I think if you read it, you would be surprised to see that to be a holy representation of God that is set apart instrument to represent God, it would be a lot more practical than you think. It would be a lot more everyday on the ground, nitty gritty than you might think, right? We might expect a list of religious rituals, but a majority of Leviticus 19 shows us the kind of holiness that reflects God's own holiness and through very practical down to earth ways. So I'm gonna read some bullet points of what it means to be holy, what it means to represent God in the world from Leviticus chapter 19. I'm just gonna read the bullet points and I am gonna say the verse numbers 
just in case something catches your ear and you want to write it down because you don't believe me. Okay? So what does it mean to reflect God's holiness in the world for you tomorrow or this afternoon? It means that you'll show respect within your family and your community. You'll respect one another. Verse three, verse 32. It means that you in every way and I in every way will show exclusive loyalty to Yahweh as God. Verses four through eight. It means that we will practice economic generosity in the marketplace, in our agriculture. Verses nine and 10. It means we will observe the commandments regarding social relationships. Think 10 commandments, verses 11 and 12. It means that we will fight and move into our everyday life for economic justice and employment rights. Verse 13. It means that we will show social compassion to the disabled. Verse 14. It means that we will show in all of our dealings judicial integrity in the legal system. Verses 12 and 15. It means we'll our neighborly attitude toward our behavior will be loving our neighbors as ourself. Verse 16 and 18. It means that we will preserve the symbolic distinctiveness of us as the people of God. So for us, think baptism, think Lord's Supper, think Sabbath. Verses 20 and 22. Actually, that's verse 19. We will show sexual integrity in all of our dealings. Verses 20 and 22 and 29. We will reject all practices connected with idolatry or false religion, verses 26 through 31. We will not show ill treatment of ethnic minorities, but rather racial equality before the law and practical love for the alien as for oneself. That's a quote from 33 and 34 of Leviticus 19. We will show commercial honesty in all trading transactions, verses 35 and 36. So my point is this, is that when we think of holiness, we probably thought of not these things. But in fact, to be holy, to represent God as priests in the world is very practical. It's very nitty gritty. It's very on the ground. And you know, all throughout this chapter, Moses repeats this phrase, On behalf of God, I am the Lord. As if to say, this is what I require of you because this is what reflects me. And this is what I myself would do if I were you in that situation. And that's how you reflect me in the world. And certainly this is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says that we are to be salt and light in the world. That we are to display our good works before everyone. Why? So that our father in heaven would be glorified. And honored. And so, so what I'm really saying here is that an essential part of the mission of God's people is simply for us to be what we are. It's to take the fact of holiness and begin to take up the task of holiness in everyday living, practically. Right? Mission is not something that we do when we go somewhere else. Mission starts in your own home and in your own neighborhood and honestly in your own heart and in my own heart, that we would recognize, we would remind ourselves we are set apart for devotion to the God who saved us. So it starts very close. You know, this week on Monday, I reported for jury duty. And uh, I was not excited about this. Uh, I showed up and there were hundreds of people there. And we found out 
that they needed over 200 jurors. It's a lot. I found out it was a lot. And the third pool of people they called, my number was called. Bad, I had a bad attitude about this. So when I'm sitting there, as they're asking all of us questions, I'm consciously thinking to myself, how can I look like I'm in pain? How can I look so disinterested that they won't choose me? And what that looked like was me sitting there with my head in my hand, staring at the ground the whole time. Unless they said, juror, and they said my number, mister, and I said, it's Sheeter, okay? I said that three different times. It's Sheeter, like a sheet of paper. Very disrespectful. Disgust. It's Sheeter. That's what I said. And um, guess what? They chose me. I was the first name they called, and they said my name wrong again. And so I, I was there and I was there all week, all week this week. That's where I was from 8.30 to about five o'clock, a little bit later uh, on Thursday because we were in deliberation. I had never experienced this before. And as I'm walking to the parking garage after opening arguments on Monday afternoon, because they just put us right in there. Um, I'm walking there so frustrated, thinking about all of the wasted time this was going to be. And it was as though the Holy Spirit himself whispered in my ear as I'm walking, this is, this is, this is what happened in my mind immediately. This was the phrase starting here. Do you remember yesterday? Because this was Monday, so Sunday would have been yesterday. When you said to everyone, you are sent. And I said, the point is, right? No, I immediately said, yes. And from that moment on, I went from immediate confession, repentance. Lord, forgive me for being so selfish. Forgive me for being so close-minded. Forgive me for thinking that this was an inconvenience as opposed to realizing you sent me here. Now, listen, this is not what the story, the point of the story is not me at all. It's really not. The point of the story is that it was proved true to me. Every week I tell you, I say, I don't know where you'll be sent this week, but I know wherever you go, you were sent there. And so for me, from that moment on, for the most part, I had a really good attitude about it. But more than that, it was, I am here as a priest. I knew where we were going this week. I am here to represent God. I am here to pray for these people, to pray for justice, to speak up for justice, whatever that would be. And I don't know until the end when we get into deliberation. So here we are sitting in deliberation on Thursday afternoon. And um, we get to the point where we're having to really decide. And now there are, there is disagreement and they had elected me as the four person. So I was the one who was leading us through this. And I said, listen, I said, before we move any further, I need you to know something. I'm a pastor. And every week I stand up and I tell my congregation that they are sent 
And I do that with the benediction. And I told them what that was. So let me, this is what it means. And I said, so for me, I know that God has sent me here and I'm here not, I'm here to represent him not to get out of here as soon as I can. And so whatever we come to, I know that my conscience has to be clear before my God. Now for you, whatever that is for you, I want that for you too. I want your conscience to be clear. And I wanna remind all of us what we were tasked with doing. We were tasked with discerning justice the best we could. And so please let me call us all back and remind us of that task. And we, we talked through it and we moved forward. And afterwards, it was interesting, the conversations I had with some of the other jurors, they were so fascinated by my perspective. And again, this isn't about me. And that's not even a heroic story. You all probably, I'm serious about this. You all probably would have been more eloquent about it than me. You probably would have been more upfront about it than me. And yet that for me was being a priest. That for me was representing the goodness of God. And yet we can't be done because if I ended now, I'm not sure how this message would be Christian. It certainly would be good. It certainly would be moral. It certainly would be true so far, but we have to move on, right? Because there are three roles of a priest. I believe that I exercised those roles. There are two callings, there are two realities to holiness. I knew I walked in that room a saint, not because of anything I did. And yet I was given a task to live into that calling when I was there and for you, wherever that was last week. But also we need to look at the last thing that Peter says about our identity. And that is that we are a people for his own possession. We are a people for his own possession. So the one people or possession of God the threefold role of priests, the two givens of holiness and the one people or possession of God. Listen, the word possession is exactly what it sounds like. When you have a possession, it's yours because you have it because you want it and you keep it safe. And if you have a possession, it's to use it for a certain reason. It's to implement it for a certain reason, but it's to take care of it so that it can actually perform that thing that it exists to perform. And I want to point out that at the very beginning in verse nine, it says that we are a chosen race. And by the way, race in the Bible doesn't mean skin color. It means family or people group. But you are a chosen race. It doesn't say you were a choice, like a steak, right? Like the choice steak or the choice whatever, like you're looking and the choice diamond when you go and buy an engagement ring. No, no, no. You weren't the choice, but you were chosen. You weren't chosen because you were the best. You were chosen because God wanted you. Has nothing to do with with our capability. Has nothing to do with our potential. Has everything to do with God's mercy and God's love for us. He chose us and he cares for us. And I love the way Eugene Peterson says this in his paraphrase of these two verses. And I'm gonna read it. He says, but you are the chosen, you are the ones chosen by God chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. You see, 
if God didn't choose you and me because we were special, then how did he make us his own? How did he take not holy people and say, I'm going to set them apart? How did that happen? Well, it happened because Jesus, the one who was always accepted, was rejected on the cross so that you and I who deserve rejection could be accepted into his family. The one who needed no mercy because he was perfect received no mercy so that you and I could receive mercy. The one who was perfect was rejected. So the ones, you and I, who were imperfect could be accepted. That's what it costs for God to make us his possession in Jesus Christ. So for you and I to embrace this calling to be priests is first to embrace God's way of how we become priests. And that is to trust in Jesus' sacrifice as the great high priest for us. The one who ultimately brings God to us. The one who ultimately brings us to God is Jesus. So anything you and I do are a response to what Jesus has done. And so this is where I would end. The call to holiness, the task of holiness is a call to enjoy God more. Because the more you and I are pursuing this task of holiness, becoming more of what we are, we will enjoy God more. And the call to holiness is a call to join God more because God needs us to be his holy people, to use us as he wants. But the call to holiness is not a call to be loved by God more because we can't control that. God loves us perfectly. He loves us perfectly now. He loves you perfectly tomorrow. And yesterday, he can't love you anymore. So I'll say that again, because when we talk about obedience, when we talk about holiness, some of us freak out. Let me say this again. The call to holiness is a call to enjoy God more. The call to holiness is a call to join God more. But the call to holiness is not a call to be loved by God more. Because you are loved as his special possession in Christ right now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now confessing our desire to stand out. Our desire to be seen as worthy of your honor and respect, and yet we're not. But you give it to us all the more because that's grace. Forgive us for our desire for justice for everyone else, but for mercy for us. Thank you that you have called us to yourself through Jesus apart from anything that we've ever done or will do just because you wanted to. And I pray that you would give us the strength to respond to what you've called us to, that we would do it with gratefulness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.